Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. We took a bit of an August break, and I hope that you did too. But we're now back with a great slate of guests and issues for you. This week, my colleague here at CSIS, Sam Brennan, chats with Sarah Ladislaw and Nico Safos about energy forecasts. Sam leads the Risk and Foresight Group here at CSIS. As someone who thinks quite a bit about long-term strategic planning and the variables that factor into this kind of thinking, Sam took the opportunity to chat with Sarah and Nikos about the role of energy forecasts and outlooks in helping decision makers in both industry and in governments. They also look at how forecasts can change over time, how they can vary in scope, and how the ultimate goal of the outlook matters. Here's Sam, Nikos, and Sarah. Well, I've succeeded in inviting myself on my favorite CSIS podcast. Don't tell the other CSIS podcasts, but I listen to Energy 360 just about every episode. And the reason is because I like thinking about the future, and you guys like thinking about the future. And today I wanted to ask you a little bit about particularly the role that forecasts and futures thinking plays in energy policy and how you use this huge range of forecasts that come out. So I will say at the outset that I think the energy industry is distinct because it leads the way among companies in thinking about the future. We have uh, energy policy is inherently about the future because of the investments that play out over the course of decades and the decisions that we make today have big downstream literal and upstream consequences as well. Um, and at the heart of all this futures thinking are these really quantitative energy forecasts that as I look at them, they get more sophisticated every year in what they're looking at. It's not just about supply, demand, fuel mix. It's about carbon emissions, electric vehicle adoption, even policy questions, and lots of excursion cases. So somebody who looks at futures, I look at awe with what's an industry within the energy industry, which is forecasting. So I know you host a huge number of releases annually from the companies and international agencies that put out these forecasts. But at the outset, I just wanted to talk about this question of where forecasting fits and the overall discussion of futures, because I think sometimes people blend what's forecasting and what's what's futures discussions. And I know, Nikos, you come from a forecasting background. And maybe if you could set context on what's a forecast versus what do we mean when we talk about the future or future space broadly in energy? This will seem very obvious, but a forecast is a relation between inputs and outputs. So whatever you put in, you get out. Uh, and I think a lot of times we want forecasts to tell us the future, uh, whereas really forecasts tell us how certain relationships and certain inputs are going to translate into, translate into outputs over an extended period of time. And if we do X, what will happen? If we do Y, what will happen? If we want to accomplish X, what do we need to do? What are the implications of that? Um, and obviously, it's a immensely challenging task to forecast how a massive system like energy is going to evolve over 20, 30 years. Um, so we do have a tendency to get a lot of it wrong. Uh, but the purpose of forecasting is more for us to understand the range of outcomes, understand what really matters, understand what drives what else, rather than trying to really uh, paint a very precise picture of what the future of energy is going to look like. 
and maybe it's not a fair question or point in the, with that context that you've given, but if we look back from, say, 2000 to 2016, I've seen criticism lodged against some of the forecasts that, hey, they missed two big things. They missed shale, uh, well, three big things. They missed sort of the flattening of the oil demand curve, and they missed renewables, the, the growth in renewables that in many cases sort of doubled what the expectations were. Um, is But in aggregate, they're actually pretty accurate in terms of level of energy demand growth over that, that time period. Uh, so is, is that a fair criticism? And, and do you think that's just kind of to be expected? We're never going to get precisely right? Or, or do you see these forecasts getting, getting better? Certainly now, almost all of the forecasts have these excursions um, on the big variable question of climate change and climate policy, which could radically shift uh, the, the supply demand, uh, or certainly the supply calculus there. Let me make a few observations. It's true that if you look at forecasts, they didn't foresee a lot of the changes that transpired in the energy system over the last 20 years. Um, in fairness, those were largely unforeseeable events. Um, the thing that I always try to see is the extent to which forecasts incorporate the latest information, because people saw shale at different times. So the best you can say about a forecast is that it was quick to pick up new signals. Uh, and that, I think, is what we can hope forecasts to do. But a more macro level, um, as you pointed out, on some big questions like how much energy does the world consume or will consume, uh, these long-term forecasts tend to be quite good because they're driven by really basic structural relationships between population uh, and income. Um, if you go back and look at the International Energy Agency, what it was saying in the year 2000, you know, you may quibble with some of the specific numbers, but... They were largely right on how much energy the world will consume, that this system is going to be largely driven by fossil fuels. Both of those macro statements were correct. The one thing I do always think about is we sometimes underappreciate that this is a, a dynamic system, right? So to give a, a random analogy, if I write a piece of paper that says, if we don't do anything, a large share of the global population might starve, and then someone goes out and does something, and so people don't starve. I mean, was my forecast wrong? I mean, maybe my forecast was wrong. Would If I had just said, hey, if we don't do anything, people might starve, but I think we're probably going to do something and people won't starve, uh, it's not clear which of these two positions is, is more accurate. So uh, the energy system is very dynamic. People look at these forecasts, and sometimes they think there's opportunity. They think we're not doing enough, and so they react. So there's a dynamic element that is always very difficult to incorporate into your thinking, but what is very important in a system where actors look at these forecasts and respond, whether policymakers or businesses. Let me ask Sarah a question picking up on that, which is if we look now at the energy forecasts from, from BP, from Equinor, from ExxonMobil, from the Energy Information Agency, from, from a variety of sources, they all in their base case, again, assuming sort of nothing changes dramatically in policy outlook, they all say that we're kind of headed towards this 80-20 future in 2040, where 80% is still fossil fuel sources, 20% is renewable, G growing share of wind and solar, growing share of nuclear to some degree, sort of flat hydro. Um, but 
for a lot of people, they find that a pretty depressing future in light of the stakes that we have with Paris Agreement staying below the two-degree target. That doesn't get us there. Uh, how how accurate do you think those forecasts are in the current climate? What what are the variables you're looking at that would change those? And how useful is this to the policy conversation that's going on? Yeah, thanks, Sam. And thanks for um, being on Energy 360. We like having you on here. Um, you know, maybe picking up on a couple of things that Nico said and by way of answering your question, I mean, a lot of people ask us, why do we have so many outlooks come to the CSIS Energy Program? It's been a real feature of what we do. And part of it is because, as Nikos rightly said, they're vehicles for discussion. <clears throat> right. So every person who's come here that does a forecast basically says, please don't believe my forecast. Please don't take the conclusions of my forecast as the conclusion of the value of this conversation. The value is in sort of the dialogue. Right. It's, it's in the relationships between the different um, uh, fuel choices in the intersection of policy and fuel choices in the sort of, you know, the pace of innovation on some of the assumptions on economic growth and all of those sorts of things. And so each one of these forecasts has a very important role to play because depending on what they change or the kind of scenarios that they build off of them, they're seeding a conversation, right? So, for example, um, some of them will look at what is, you know, as you mentioned, the very popular thing to do is to look at what it would take to get to a atmospheric stabilization of two degrees Celsius, right? The sort of Paris Climate Agreement plus its, you know, ultimate goal. And so there's a lot of work that has gone on, um, probably the biggest level of innovation in many of these forecasts in the last several years has been to look at, you know, in greater levels of detail. One, are we on track to meet that goal? Two, what are the various ways that you could meet that goal? And then three, sort of further downstream in the analytical process, what does it take to actually enable those component pieces to meet that goal? And so um, the sort of scenarios that you were just talking about, their base case or reference case that largely views the energy system in terms of its fuel mix as being relatively unchanged from the past, the takeaway from that should not be that we are predestined to that future, but that we are not actually making the kinds of changes that would require us to be on a fundamentally different path. The trick of that is that it obscures some really important types of things that have changed, right? So like the fact that you know, renewables are cost competitive on a different basis. The fact that a lot of um, energy that is participating in electric power markets is now playing in different ways. They're distributed energy resources. It's changed the business model and some of the inputs for that business. And and I would say in the past, many times that the, the modeling has gotten it wrong in terms of foreseeing some of those, you know, big changes, whether it's tide oil and shale gas or the cost competitiveness of renewables, it's because a relationship has changed, a business industry has changed, right? This distributed network of, um, of energy technologies that can now come into either the supply side or the demand side of the equation is making the energy system much more complex. And talking to any of the people that are doing these modeling models these days, they know, in fact, we just put out a report that, you know, talks about this a little bit. They know that the models don't represent the coming complexity of the um, of the electric power system, of the sort of relationship between the electric power system and the um, 
uh, in the transportation system. And so I think to the extent that we will see surprises going forward, much of it will come from some of the cost assumptions that we had on how those more complex energy systems uh, may evolve. Uh, and, And then there are other places where Um, We know we'll get surprised, and we just aren't sure the degree to which. So battery technology, storage technology in general is one massive area where people understand that there's a lot of potential, but, you know, whether that's going to come in sort of, you know, batteries as they apply to the electric vehicle space – storage technologies as they apply to short-term or longer-range storage of electric power on the electric power sector, we really don't, we don't know. And so um, that's where I think these, these models actually are critically important because there are lots of technically-minded people who try to figure out how to communicate with one another about sort of the assumptions of their limits and uh, uh, to, to sort of changes in the energy system. Um, I will say one of the one of the things I do when I'm talking to people using models is show them the oil price collapse of the sort of late 2000 period or the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster or, you know, the change that you've seen from U.S. oil and gas uh, supply and, and show them sort of what a near-term picture of those things look like versus a 10, 20, 30 year view of what those things look like. And and the, this gets to the crux of the issue, which is the energy system is just this giant ship and turning it in any one direction is just a massive endeavor. So even things that we personally relate to as really important dynamic changes in the energy system, when you sort of wash them out over the entire energy system and look at them over a multi-decade time frame, they don't look like that big of a deal. That brings me to an outlier practice from the major energy companies, which is Shell Oil Company routinely releases scenarios that, and they've been doing this since the Arab oil embargo in the 1970s. They adopted scenario planning from the Department of Defense, Pierre Weck, and then Peter Schwartz later, and it's gone on through sort of a lineage of people who are the scenario planning masters. So those of us in the futures community have all sort of studied the Shell cases. And most recently, Shell is looking out to between 2050 and 2100, and they have some really interesting outlier cases where there's really radical change in light of climate uh, pressures. How useful do you think those types of excursions are? I know Equinor also has this kind of a case in in their scenarios. Yeah, actually, um, having participated in a number of the shell scenario planning processes, I think what maybe people don't um, fully appreciate is that they don't just do their shell scenario planning kind of, you know, on a on a sort of global aggregate basis. They actually take it to local communities where they're working and they'll actually have shell scenarios. So they've done them in the U.S. and Pennsylvania and the Gulf Coast and other parts of the world. And um, what's interesting on that side of the equation is uh, two things. One, involving other people in trying to put these together can be a very useful exercise in getting people to appreciate the complexity of uh, of trying to forecast the future, right? Um, and, and think much differently about whether or not something like um, uh, energy policy matters relative to underlying de- demographic or economic trends in a region, right? If you don't sit down and actually think about the relationship between these things, Maybe you don't, you know, appreciate uh, which one weighs more than the other or those types of things. Um, I I do think it's really 
useful um, in some respects and then maybe less useful in others, right? So in some of those scenario policy processes, it helps because they're trying to take things like you know, populism or the sort of or geopolitics, the sort of less tangible, measurable things out there in the world that do affect the energy markets and uh, and climate change and all of those sorts of things and, and use them, right, and to actually incorporate them, which is a, a broad criticism of scenarios that don't actually use those things. They're saying, well, that's just, you know, that's just an equation. What are your, as Nico said, you know, you're putting information in, you've got basic relationships, you're going to get some things out the other end. That That's not the real world. So that's the strength. I think the weakness is it's really hard to sort of disaggregate relational information out of some of those scenarios because it's hard to say, well, I, that's that's a, a vision of the future, but I don't exactly know what to do with that, right? I have a feeling about what that yields, but I'm not quite sure, you know, where to go with it. So I being kind of a connoisseur of these uh, these uh, um, outlooks, I like the fact that there are lots of different kinds of them because they do play a very different function depending on what you want to use them for. If I can add one thing to what Sarah said, just to build up on her last thought, I do find the extraordinary utility of these thinking exercises as long as they don't become sort of paralyzing, right? Because if you put on the table that we have a climate challenge, that we need to change our energy system. If you put out something, a vision of the future, that is just too far. It's too difficult to visualize. It's just you really can't see how you go from here to there. Um, that doesn't really help spur action. It can really make you feel like the challenge is just too complicated, too difficult, and you can't possibly imagine how you, your society, your country is going to survive in that kind of world. So I think, going back to what Sarah said, there's a utility in having different perspectives, and there's a role for that sort of farther out perspective of how the world can look and how relationships can change and be reshaped, as long as we don't let that sort of stop us from doing things today because we can't see the pathway from today to then. Let me follow on that by asking a question about disruptive or wildcard type events. And you mentioned from the technology space, certainly battery storage being one of those, um, the pace of that, the level of innovation. Are there others that, that come to mind that you're keeping an eye on that even if it's sort of a weak signal that's that's out there, but it's something that you think could be fundamentally a, a game changer? It could be policy too. It could be global GDP growth, it could be any any of the above. Let me start with that one. The thing that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is mobility. Um, and I'm thinking about mobility in different ways and for different reasons. Um, the one thing that has really struck me is that the community that I sort of follow and read on mobility uh, splits itself into sort of two areas. There are people who think of mobility in terms of, you know, Uber and Teslas and autonomous vehicles and mobility as a service and the sort of plugged-in city and future of cities. And then there's a whole other group of people that think about mobility in terms of reclaiming space away from cars and giving it to people and building parks and allowing people to walk around and sort of reshaping how cities are organized um, and laid out. And I think what's fascinating is and it goes to the exercise of forecasting, is I 
have very good data about gasoline consumption in the U.S. I have terrible data on how much people walk. And if they're staying at home or walking to work, we have you know, one big survey that the Census Bureau does on sort of commuting to work. But we don't have really good data on other forms of sort of behavioral change and mobility. And so there is a bias that we forecast the things that we can measure. And the things that we can measure inevitably are the things that have been happening already. And we think about those relationships in that way. So I do think there is a broader uh, change that I see happening with you know, cities trying to ban cars from their downtowns and trying to sort of take down uh, highways and replace them with parks and, and bikes and scooters. Um, and and I, that's a lot harder to measure and quantify. And so therefore, it's possible that in your long-term forecasting, you're missing some of these more behavioral changes. Uh, and it's a very hard thing to do, um, but it is something we'll have to, to think about more and whether or not we're making too linear of an assumption between sort of the past and the present. You know, the, the idea has always been that by the time you get richer, you want to get a car. And my sense is that by the time you get richer, you want to be able to get to where you want to be. And whether it's a car that gets you there is sort of incidental to that purpose. Um, and so I think that broader landscape of mobility, uh, I can see a lot of changes that aren't necessarily reflected in the way we think about uh, transportation and energy, which is mostly about oil versus electric vehicles versus maybe hydrogen one day, which is essentially how the energy industry spends a lot of its time thinking about this problem. So a couple uh, that are not terribly dissimilar from the, the kind of change that Nikos is talking about, I think there's a lot of built-in assumptions in current energy modeling that I have always sort of asked us to question, right? And I think some of it we just do because it's what we're used to. So, for example, just the relationship between um, energy and economic growth, particularly in developing economies, right? We don't have great information on that. There's a lot of people who are pushing for developing economies to leapfrog, uh, both in terms of the type of energy they use, but also in terms of just the overall efficiency of, of uh, the way they use energy. And there's some case studies out there that, you know, development economists have done on latent energy demand and, you know, whether or not the, the sort of leapfrogging experience is actually happening. I just think there's a lot of places around the world that have a different development model in mind. And it's not that they don't want to industrialize. It's just that they want to be competitive in a certain set of energy technologies. And so this idea that you just have to have affordable, reliable energy supplies, period, first, and then you get to do all of the other sort of industrial strategy, competitiveness, you know, competing in the high-tech realm of technology. We see in India and China, in countries in Africa, countries in Southeast Asia, they, they kind of want to do both of those things. And so there's a lot of sort of more nuance in sort of the energy and development space today than I think, you know, we ascribe to it in the past. Whether that yields fundamentally different outcomes, I don't know. But like one thing is absolutely true of energy modeling is we tend to focus a lot on the supply side and the demand side's just so much more important. I mean, it just, it's so relevant and just, you know, percentage differences can make really big differences for industries. And so that's one area where I think there could actually be a lot of change and disruption where we don't necessarily predict it. I think the other two places are um, the very sort of typical one that we talk about a lot, which is geopolitical disruption, right? Everybody, you know, 
hates talking about it because you can't forecast it necessarily. And but when you, you can, and when you do, and there are significant changes, I think that that's a um, uh, they can have really really important, even if near term impacts. And so I think how you put sort of geopolitics into these forecasts, we always have to talk about it because it's part of what we focus on. But it's also routinely not forecast well, and that's why I applaud. I do applaud the the scenarios that try to put that element into the conversation. And then the final one, because it's so salient today, is trade. And there's a lot about energy system modeling that just assumes we trade with each other. Um, if that's not true, uh, if there are countries that do trade with each other or don't trade with each other, um, that have preferential relationships with one another, that um, have border carbon adjustments because of climate policy, all of that would change a lot about um, uh, the outcomes in the energy system. And so I think that those are a few that are non-technological but, but certainly remain on our minds. How often do you think forecasters get together? Do the companies exchange views on these things? Is there a forecast con? Should we be filling that uh, space at, at CSIS and bringing together crosstalk? I, I'm just I'm curious how the you know people are reaching the same very similar conclusions. Um, I wonder if that's just bias in all using the same data sources in, or if it's methodology, if they're just reaching the, the right conclusion, and then to the extent that they might talk to each other. Unfair question. You may have no purview into that, but just a curiosity. Uh, it gives me a chance to plug a new resource uh, that our colleagues at Resources for the Future have just put out. Uh, Richard Newell and Daniel Ramey uh, and Gloria Aldana um, is a tool that basically compares the outlooks. And it's going to be a useful tool for lots of people because everybody also wants to compare the outlooks. I will say, and this is not sort of disparaging the research or the tool at all, energy modelers know that each other exist. There's something called the Energy Modeling Forum where people get together and talk about tools of the trade and their craft and, and those types of things. So if you put all the models together, you don't come out with the right answer, right? That's not that's not what they're for. And, and that's not really, you know, when you talk to the people who are doing this, they all have their their own sort of reason that they're doing an energy modeling. A lot of it is for a corporate purpose or for a public good or to explore um, some avenue. Bloomberg No Energy Finance is another favorite of ours because it tried to create information where there wasn't adequate information before um, in investment in the clean energy uh, sector and sort of create a unique view based on that information. I would say the sort of sum total of those outlooks should help you know, people understand where some of the the uncertainty lies or um, uh, where, you know, some of the sameness or the sort of similar outcomes are. Um, but but they do tend to try and develop them based on sort of their own best estimate of the information that they're trying to analyze rather than like relative to each other, you know, sort of thing. So that that is to say, yes, they do talk to each other. Yes, they are aware of each other. They are aware of where they sit relative to one another by and large. Um, but I think uh, at least, you know, most of the folks that I talk to, they do try quite hard to make sure that they are organically sort of developing their own view on something um, so that that they're not just sort of, you know, they're not all trying to stay in the same range, I guess is what I'm saying. A couple of things I would add to that as a person who spent a lot of his consulting career forecasting. Uh, after you're done with your forecast, you definitely check where you are <laughs> against others. Uh, that's one. Two, I mean, there are only so many ways mathematically to do a forecast, right? Uh, so 
there's only so much deviation you can get from basic mathematical relationships. Um, three, sometimes it's a hassle to be really off the consensus. Um, and sometimes that hassle is worth taking on. I think Bloomberg New Energy Finance is a good example of that, where they are very conscious that there is a consensus and they're very conscious that they are off consensus and trying to make the case for a different way of thinking about the future. Um, and if you want to do that, there's a great space for that. Uh, oftentimes I have found that you may be very different at the consensus, but you really don't really want to talk about that specific number that much, but people like to fixate on numbers that look different. Um, so there is a trade-off, I think, at the end of the day of what it is that you're trying to communicate. If you're trying to communicate that you think people are getting it wrong or they're underestimating this force or that force, uh, then it's really helpful to be able to show where you are and where others uh, are at. But that really comes down to what the purpose of your exercise is and, and really the kind of questions that you're trying to answer. Um, and I think, uh, as Sarah has pointed out, and as we've learned from our forecasting exercises, the more interesting question is not, you know, what will the energy system look like in 2040? That's not really the most interesting question. The most interesting question is, you know, how do we meet the Paris climate target or what happens if we ban, you know, internal combustion engines or what happens if the price of solar PV keeps falling at this rate? Those are the more interesting questions. And so if you start with more interesting questions or different questions, you may get different outcomes uh, without necessarily uh, deviating substantially from what others are saying, but just because you're starting from a different perspective. So I take the headline beware a false sense of comfort in quantitative data. These are for discussion purposes. They have broader context. And I know a lot of what you do is convene around that broader context. Um, maybe a final question, if I can. And that is, how do you see policymakers taking some of these forecasts and making decisions or not taking these forecasts and, and making decisions? By and large, um, selectively. There's different kinds of forecasting, right? There's the sort of annualized forecasting that is used to basically give people a temperature check on where the world is headed, right? And that's a very sort of routine part of the policy consultation process, particularly at the federal level. There are special requests that happen that involve, you know, energy uh, forecasts, which basically say, what will the impact of this policy be, right? So you could, the EIA has done them on major pillars of policy, like the clean power plan or vehicle efficiency standards. Um, they've done them on the future of nuclear power. And again, those are helpful ways to help stress test a couple different scenarios and policy outcomes based on a range of factors to give policymakers confidence in something that they might be interested in enacting in law or passing as part of regulation. Uh, by and large, though, I think that if, uh, if they were taken up a little bit more frequently, right, in terms of a tool for analyzing different policy outcomes, then I think I think that would be helpful. I think it's a it's always really good when um, um, policymakers try and and use modeling exercises, which are different than forecasting, to think about relational. Um, uh, aspects of a certain kind of policy that they're putting in place. And I think that's increasingly important um, given the massive kinds of changes that we 
you know, need to do to the energy system uh, in order to deal with things like climate change. And so I think it's I think it is a very important tool that policymakers should use more. Uh, too often, um, I do find policymakers will take a, a piece of information out of a forecast uh, and use it out of context. And and it's just so important because the context for all of these things matter. And and that um, and I think that that's oftentimes the way that they get used, sort of examples of things that are or are not happening or that 80-20 divide that you talked about, right, is is often used to say, hey, we're making zero progress on decarbonizing the energy system. That's not true, right? It, it, that is one manifestation of a way in which we're falling short, but it doesn't really fully describe the situation. And so I think that that oftentimes, unfortunately, is another way that they're used. One thing to add, uh, the way I always think of forecasts is they – they, they really capture sort of the moment of how people are thinking about the world, right? So it's quite clear that forecasts from 10 years ago that showed the U.S. was going to be a big importer of gas uh, turned out to be incorrect. But putting that aside, clearly shaped policies, shaped how this town thought about energy, energy security, the importance of importing liquefied natural gas, the what that would mean for U.S. energy security and U.S. energy policy. So it's clear that at least insofar as policy springs from ideas and assumptions and prejudices about the world, those in large part are based on forecasts that we make and the way that we think that the world is going to evolve. Um, Now, because it's a dynamic system, things change and people react. Uh, But I think that's the clearest way that I think of forecasts is they capture essentially how a group of people sometimes an entire industry, is thinking about the state of the world and where things are going and what is happening or what might happen. And so from that set of ideas and assumptions comes policy, business decisions, and all sorts of uh, other kind of activities. So that, I think, is the the main uh, way in which you go from forecasting to sort of the real world of business and policy. Sarah and Nikos, thank you for allowing me to invite myself on the podcast. (laughs) I had a good time. Uh, And I think that's a really fascinating overview of how forecasting and futures plays in energy and probably some real lessons that could be learned for other sectors and industries, other policy questions. So something for the futures community to ponder. So thanks for your contribution on that. Special thanks to Sam for joining us. As always, thanks for listening. Find more episodes of Energy 360 on CSIS.org, on iTunes, and of course, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. 